are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. I often have conversations with people about what it's like to build something brand new inside of a larger company or a corporation. If you don't regularly tune into the podcast, this is actually the second time that I'm doing it. I recently started a new role, and previously I was a product manager at a different financial institution, and in some ways I have been able to spot both the pitfalls and the opportunities that comes with that area of work and that work environment. And one of the things that is most exciting about having that opportunity in my career has been the resources that come with it. And when I think about resources, I don't just mean the amount of people or the budgets that come with building inside of a larger company, which is definitely an added bonus, but I would actually say it's the room and the space and the time to go through some of those more traditional innovation studies, research, and processes associated with the field. So on the podcast, when I interview different people from different companies, especially smaller companies, the first question I want to ask them is how do you do those things with the limited amount of runway or the fewer people? I've worked at companies of different scale, and I can say that when when I was in the startup space, sometimes these frameworks and these processes all go out the window because you're just trying to survive as a company. But today's guest really does prove that no matter what size or scale of company that you're at, if you want to get to that larger scale, then you do have to go through the quote-unquote motions. Lucy Besson is the Chief Product Officer of Content Square, which is a company that helps companies really understand how people are using their own digital products, whether it's an app or a website. And when you hear her talk, she really explains that going through those motions and going through those innovation processes and frameworks is what helped her scale Content Square as a really successful company as well as a product. I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation, and before I hand it off, just want to say how crazy that it is that we are over almost 85 episodes down with a win-win podcast and about to be in season five. I am continuously grateful for the conversations I get to have, and as always, I look to you for your feedback or any guests that you may want me to chat with on the win-win podcast. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the episode with Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Nice to meet you and uh, nice to be with you today. Yes, I'm super excited. We'll be talking all about your career and your time at Content Square, where you are Chief Product Officer. Uh, for those that don't know, Content Square is a company that helps its customers build better experiences by sharing information on how customers behave on their properties, whether that is their website or anything else. And, you know, personally, I think consumer behavior is absolutely fascinating. And the more experience I gain in my own industry and in my own role, 
the more I realize how much innovation there is in the space and how much more there is really to do. So I guess thinking about your experience when you joined this role, you were, you know, this was your first real experience after college. So did you have any idea about the space? Were you excited about it? Or were you honestly just happy to have a job after college? (laughs) So what happened is at the end of college, I had to do an internship for three months in an entrepreneurial situation, I would say. So I had to choose either a startup or a scale-up and go work for them. And what happened is I was working for a company named Sarenza, which is the French equivalent of Zappos. Mm -hmm. And their situation was they just get phoned out. So they were self-financed. So Mm -hmm. they had to really reduce the amount of expenses uh, in terms of acquisition. So they were trying to double down on how you can create more retention and spend less on acquisition. I worked on very interesting projects around loyalty, also how you can create engagement, inspiration on the website so people will come back. But we were lacking of data. Then I discovered Content Square job offer that was basically how can you increase retention based on data? And I was like, oh my God, it's exactly what I've been missing. And this is how everything started. So I would say that it's really about identifying a problem and then identifying a company that solved your problem. You know, as a practitioner, Mm -hmm. I had this issue. So I was like, okay, a company that focuses on solving this kind of issue, it's worth it. You see what I mean? So this is how I I got like uh, this opportunity, I would say. I completely resonate because I started out in the luxury fashion market and ultimately, you know, when people ask me, how could you leave such an exciting space and and go into financial services? I think one of the big issues that I was personally experiencing was the challenges that these companies were having kind of going digital, especially knowing that they were selling such expensive pieces of clothing and shoes and bags and really not wanting it to feel like an Amazon checkout while still driving really, really expensive purchases. So I completely understand because I I think ultimately now being on the other side of that, I'm concerned considering how do you use payments in a way that's both conducive for the consumer as well as the merchants on the other side. So in your time at Content Square, uh, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it, but the company has grown tremendously. And I'm sure that you did not start as chief product officer. That wasn't the job offer that you saw. So when you started, what was your role and what was your trajectory as far as advancing in your career and the innovation industry within Content Square? Yeah, so I started as a customer success manager. So I don't know if it's a job that everybody knows here, but basically after the sales sign a contract, you are in charge of the experience of the customer, making sure they create value and they get value out of the service or out of the product they are purchasing. And when I arrived, we were having our first self-service clients, which means that we were having our first clients that were using themselves, the product, in order to create value. Because mm-hmm. other clients we had, we were analyzing the data for them and we were giving them reports. And so I started working with those clients and I really enjoyed it, you know, because on top of the data, you had these technological components that you have to understand the product and also as a training component. 
because it's not the same, you know, to deliver advice and to train somebody to find a way to do it himself. And I love this part. After that, what happened is uh, my CDO, so the chief technical officer, the person in charge of all the developers, convinced our CEO that they needed someone in between to define what the product is going to be, define the roadmap, define the strategy. And basically, they proposed me the job. And I was a half super excited because it's super interesting to be able to take feedback from your customer and put those feedback into a product. You know, mm -hmm. it's very rewarding. I think at the end of the year, you look back and you look at everything you've done. It's amazing. But at the same t time, and I think I can say it now, I was not technical at all. I didn't know the difference between HTML and CSS. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me, it was a bit also, I was a bit nervous, you know, because I was like, I know I'm good at being a customer success manager. And now I'm going to take a new job that I think I like, but I don't know. And also, I'm not sure I'm going to be good, you know. So it was like a kind of a, a big jump. But in the end, I'm super happy that I made it because now I kind of don't understand people that don't work in product. You know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I I agree with you. But you were given this role, yet you didn't have experience in this role, so you were kind of learning on the job, being the first person to establish what the function is, what the KPIs are, what a product culture is. You know, how did you figure out who did you turn to, and and what sort of resources did you use? So I think it's a very good, uh, very good question. I think the benefits of knowing nothing is that uh, you you want to learn everything. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, you come with a very open-minded mindset and try to learn as much as possible. But what we did is that we hired an experienced product manager and an experienced product designer. Got it. And the way we organized is I was spending a lot of time with customers training them, showing them the platform, identifying use cases, uh, because this is what I knew how to do, you know, like uh, have a customer relationship, listening to customer, sure. understand the need. And then my the product manager and the product designer, they were way more technical than me. And working together, the three of us, we were really able to... Yeah, to transform what I learned into a product, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and at that time also, the, the tech team was way smaller. So we were spending a lot of time with the CTO. So I think in a way, we were working as a trio, a bit extended, you know? But like putting all the brain together and the different competencies together, we were able to uh, to really have a great impact, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think this notion of collaboration is so, so important in both innovation and product and, and you know, the industry. Thinking about you starting this role, it did literally come from somebody advocating for the creation of this role and, and proving that there is, you know, a need for this role. When you think about other companies, a lot of the times it is really difficult to prove that, the you know, you need a chief innovation officer or a chief product officer. As you consider that, and knowing the impact that you've had in your own trajectory, what would you recommend to somebody who's either, you know, trying to create that role for themselves or is in a startup with limited resources and needs to prove the value and the worth of this role? How would you tell them to approach that kind of situation? I think it's a, it's a tough question, but it's a very important one. I think one of the arguments is that if you look at uh, all the companies that are extremely successful, but not only successful, 
the ones that have completely changed the way we live today. Uh, if you think about uh, Airbnb, if you think about Google, if you think about Amazon, mm-hmm. it's not only people that were successful in business, but it's people that were able to change their customer habits. And for me, this is the definition of innovation. When you are able to create, to understand a pain and create a solution that is that good, and it really transforms. If you think about Zoom, it's even a verb now. Showing to your companies that all those big companies, they have used this kind of model. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important. So the second thing I think is, is what, which is super important is to understand wh- what is going to bring to the company and to be able to um, identify the problem you have today, what's not working, and show how this role is going to be a good solution to the problem, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the basic of product. You know, you need to start by understanding the problem to then find the best solution to it. So I think mm-hmm. shows the example of all those amazing companies that have been extremely successful, plus identify the problem that the product manager is going to solve in your, in your own organization. Right. And when we think about innovation or a culture of product innovation, in some ways, that is already in the DNA of a company that is growing and hopefully not failing. But in other ways, I can imagine that working at a startup can feel like you're always fighting fires and, you know, taking the time to just rethink what problem we are solving and are we pushing boundaries can actually feel like a luxury, even though from an innovation point of view, it's absolutely essential. So you kind of brought it up, you know, conceptually, but how have you gone about defining a culture of innovation and questioning the norms and pushing boundaries? And how do you translate that spirit of innovation into a tangible function or an approach to tactics, you know, at your time in Content Square specifically? The first innovation at Content Square, they almost happened by chance. Mm. Like uh, our most iconic feature is what we call the zoning. Basically, is we take the website of our client and we pull out the data directly on the website. So the visualization is super easy. Uh, you can navigate your page and see different data. So it's super easy. And the reason why we did that is because at first, when we were doing report, every time we were taking a screenshot of the page and putting colored square on it to put the data because we thought it was a good visualization. And one day, our CDO said, look, if you do that every time, it means that this is what we need to productize. And you know, this very craft approach of mm-hmm. being like able to understand what is it that your customer do on a daily basis? Uh, what is it that you do on a daily basis and could be productized or could be industrialized and is going to save you time? I think this is the approach you have when you are a startup. Very often, a lot of startups have this mindset. And I think what is hard is when you grow, to keep this mindset. And uh, because when you grow, you start having scalability issues, you start having quality issues, you start having security issues. And so being able to not be drowned into those scalability problems and continue focusing on what are my users doing on a daily basis, I think it's a fuel of innovation. And I would say another thing is very often people think about innovation is complex new technology right very often look at look at netflix it's not crazy technology Uh, yeah i'm sure they have amazing engineers sure sure but the innovation 
came from the fact that they were able to reinvent the way people watch videos. It's the consumer behavior. Exactly, exactly. So I think innovation starts with spending time with your customer. And if you stop spending time with your customer, you're only going to focus on scalability issue. Mm-hmm. But if you continue to spend time with them, you're going to continue to see their needs, their pain, and their desire. And it's going to give you so much inspiration about how you can uh, make things easier for them or improve their life, you know? And something I found with with product is so much of it is intuitive because when you are communicating with your customer or even reading data about your customer, there is a moment of like emotional intelligence that you have to apply. And I know that, you know, from working at a bigger company and I can imagine in your company that is so rapidly scaling, when you had to get in the buy-in from three or four people or just the leadership team to today, when there are so many people to convince, you probably have to have more data-driven decisions and backing. So, you know, when you come up with an innovation or you want to implement a new feature, is there a specific framework that you use in terms of prioritization or, or making your case? Or is there any sort of approach you can speak to? Yeah, I what I think is super important is to mix uh, quantitative data and qualitative data. And especially for a company like Content Square, uh, today we have a bit more than a thousand customers and we have a bit more than uh, 10,000 active users. So it's not, it's not big numbers, you know, because we have, we have enterprise clients. So with a few amount of clients, uh, we get thousands of users. Yeah, exactly. For us, if you have a thousand customers, you can almost talk to each of your customers. So Mm -hmm. qualitative data are super interesting and uh, very rich and easier to get when you are in this kind of environment. Mm -hmm. But the risk with qualitative data is that you think that what one person is saying works for the majority. With qualitative data, you're going to find insights. You're going to find unexpected behavior. You're going to find and new ideas, but then you need to quantify how good is this ID based on, on quantitative data. So you need to check how many people have the same behavior than uh, these customers that you interviewed, how many customers are in the same condition or have uh, the same constraint, you know, to make sure that what you are prioritizing is going to help a majority of your customer. So being able to go from one single story to quantifying how many other people have the same story, I think is a very important in terms of prioritization. And people really love this notion of storytelling. I mean, I got my master's in strategic communication, so I pretty much would argue that I have a master's in storytelling. But you call out something so important that just because a customer tells you this incredibly, you know, meaningful story about how a feature, you know, needs to be changed or done, I think as product people or as innovators in our company, it's important to be also that discerning eye and say, okay, well, this problem may be grandiose for them, but what does it actually mean for the rest of our our customers? You talked about how Content Square has, you know, a large amount of enterprise users and clients. And so thinking about those clients, I can imagine that the way that the product gets implemented is that you need an evangelist in those companies to say, we really need this product. And, and something I've seen in this space as a whole, whether that's innovation or technology, is that 
you basically have to be creating a community of evangelists for your product as a whole. So I'm just curious, when you think about Content Square, what is the role of community and community building? And as the product person, what is your role in that? Yeah, I think uh, I completely agree with you. I think it's uh, extremely important. And it's something we created uh, quite soon at uh, Content Square. We call it the club and we gather our customer together for different kinds of uh, activities. So pre-COVID, what we were doing is every quarter, uh, we had a full hub, one in Paris, one in London, one in New York, and one in San Francisco. And we were getting our customer together. And we are having customer sharing a use case or a case, us sharing sneak peek about uh, what's coming up in the product. But most, more importantly, people together that can connect and continue the conversation after, after the event. And in parallel of that, we have a customer advisory board uh, that we also, we get together quite often. So now we get together on Zoom, but uh, we get together quite often also to share the strategic orientation of the company. So this is how we started, having the, the club and the customer advisory board. But very soon, we realized that what people love is being connecting with their peer. And so we created an online community where anybody can ask questions, can uh, also uh, share a case, share an insight, you know, just to say, look, like I'm very excited because I was able to do that with the product. And we feel that it's a very important part today of the experience. And as a side effect, which is a good one, is that then people start talking more and more about Content Square outside. You know, they give you reviews or they give you referrals. And they really, the, the community for them become a normal. So they want more and more people inside this community. You see what I mean? So you start having some kind of Network, network effect. effect. Mm -hmm, exactly. mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I'm sure that that's a much better place to also identify issues rather than somebody yeah. going to tweet about, you know, how much they hate Content Square and how it ruined their life. You're kind of creating a safe space for the customer to come to you first. Yeah, exactly. This and uh, you get critical feedback also to feed your innovation and to feed your strategy. So, uh, like uh, for me, it's the most important. Uh, the most time you can get with your customer, the better your products are going to be. And the community is one of the most efficient way to be in touch with uh, your customer. Completely, because as we've talked about scale on this podcast already, it's so easy to lose track of who your customers are. Like, you know, you mentioned Amazon, right? I, I can imagine that they are spending a lot of money and time and resources to know, you know, what is the latest happening with their customers and how they're interacting. So I think building that into your product and innovation practice is, is super important. And so on that note, we've, we've kind of been, you know, jumping around the bush with this a little bit, but when we think about Content Square itself and the product, ultimately your goal is to give companies the kind of information and context about customer behavior that will make an impact and help them build their product in such a way that is innovative. So talking about data, we know that it's such a precious resource and commodity as we know and privacy is more important than ever. So I imagine you having built a community with trust means that your customers also know that you can be trusted with that data and that privacy. So how do you navigate the notion of having the juicy information that can help truly change behaviors versus saying we don't and shouldn't be collecting X, Y, Z? Yeah. 
No, you straight on the point. I think it's uh, an extremely important topic. I think uh, being a being a company that was born in Europe also made it like a super important, uh, perhaps even sooner. You know, with uh, GDPR law and regulation, mm-hmm. uh, we were we like our customer. I think for us, privacy was always um, something super important. But our European customer they became very mindful of that very early in the process uh, thanks to the GDPR law. Mm-hmm. Um, so our point of view at Content Square is that you don't need to know who your customers are to understand what they are trying to achieve and how they feel about that. And if you think about when you are in a store, for instance, and you, you try to help someone, you don't start by asking him or her their name, uh, their age, where they live, you know, you just you just read their body language and what they are doing in the store. And then you start interacting with them, speaking with them, and you're able to understand if uh, they want to buy something as fast as possible or if it's just that uh, they want to, to get some kind of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So basically, our vision is the same, that we don't need to know who you are. We don't need to get into your private information in order to understand if you are super frustrated or super inspired by what's happening. So really, our point of view is that we can create way better experiences online uh, just based on how people behave by using zero PII or private uh, private information. Uh, and go- moving even one step further, that today personalization is very much based on demographic data and based on uh, the last products you clicked on, which very often you get retargeted for a product you already bought. I'm mm-hmm. sure like everybody had this experience already. We think that personalization could also be way more based on intent and uh, behavior. Meaning if I am a window shopper or if I am a price comparator, the next email I receive or the next notification should be different because I'm not trying to achieve the same goal, you know? And thanks to the just the click and the, the click and the scroll data, which are completely behavioral, you can detect this kind of intent, you know? So you help the customer without being intrusive with their privacy. I mean, I think that there's so much to be said about that space, especially because I do think that our customers uh, are are a lot more discerning about this. And it's interesting because I may have mentioned this to you, but I work in the financial services space. So for us, everything we do with data is highly regulated. And it's just crazy to think that, you know, in the world of commerce and social media and technology, otherwise it isn't. But I think it's really the companies like yours that are able to, to put a stake in the ground to say, we are approaching that this way from day one and we can still create value, I think to me is really, you know, the future of where the industry is going. You you touched on this in, in your answer about GDPR and I'm sure our listeners may be able to hear, but uh, you are from France. That's where you started yeah. your trajectory and you're, you know, located in the U.S., We talk about diversity a lot on this podcast, and we touch, of course, gender and race and other things. But something that I'm really curious about when you think about diversity, whether that's in your gender or otherwise, you know, you've been a woman in business for many years now. And as I mentioned, starting in in Europe and now being in the United States. So just kind of curious about your experience, you know, with diversity throughout your career and anything you can really touch on there. 
Yeah. I think for me, the biggest realization was uh, how rich it is to work with people who come from different backgrounds and different culture. And I think this started uh, with me moving from customer success to product. When you are in customer success, you talk with customer sales. So everybody is from the business world. But when you are in product, you have to talk with the business world, but also with the tech world and the engineers. So already it was for me, it was super interesting to see how different we approach a problem, how different we communicate. But then I think it became even uh, this notion of diversity became become even more obvious when we st- when we opened our first office outside France, which was in the UK. And then you start learning um, cultural differences between French and British. And I don't know, we like the two countries are so close and doing so many things together. You don't realize how different it's, it is to work between France and the UK. And then it's the same way as the, the US, you know, like it's very funny, like um in France, being five minutes late is being on time. Mm. In the US, <laughs> it's extremely, uh, extremely bad to be five minutes late. You sure, know? sure. In like in the US, when you give a feedback, you're going to do the infamous three good thing for one negative thing. In France, you're just going to go straight, straight you know? into it. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think. Uh, Discovering also the differences in, in terms of mindset and culture for me uh, was the most exciting thing uh, and the most interesting thing in terms of diversity because you learn how other people think and you learn that there is another perspective than your perspective right. and that when you are able to understand everybody's perspective, then you get a way better understanding of the problem, you know? And Completely. So, if you better understand the problem, your chances of finding a good solution and so having a good innovation are way higher. I, I would say that for me, multicultural environment was the biggest, the biggest discovery and a good discovery in my in my career. Right, and and I I felt the same way. I mean, moving you know from Israel to the United States, gender was not really discussed because it was implied that women are the same as men, whether that was actually true or not, and whether women have or don't have the same opportunity, that was kind of the point of view. And then I got to the United States and realized how many how many of my own um, oversights I had when I realized I would was past over something because of my gender, because in the United States it was discussed. So I think it's, it's a really different uh, approach to both gender as well as yeah. working styles and other things you've mentioned. So I guess my, my question for you with that is when you think about the European or the French approach to gender, is there something that you think our listeners can take away from your experience with gender um, in, in grappling with their own? And just before uh, I go into that, I would say like uh, another thing that is super interesting, I, I guess, being like in between mm, different culture is you see how different are the perspective on gender, for instance. Like in France, people consider that it's a government job to uh, to create laws, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to create the right environment, to ensure e- equality and equity. And here in the US, it's more a community thing. So as a company, you need to have a point of view and you need to contribute to that. And you're not waiting for the government to create laws. You are creating standards in your own company. 
And I think it's very interesting to see the difference uh, between uh, between the two the two approach. And I think it's more perhaps I'm biased, but I think it's more the French uh, that can learn from the US also because when you are French, you always think that you are better protected than in the US, which is true by law. But then uh, I think a lot of company could step up a bit more right. and create a better environment for the employee mm. and go one step further or two step further as uh, American companies are doing today. You know, when you see the position big company are taking and the, the impact it can have on the entire society, of course, government can help and they have a huge part to play in that. But any any small or big community can also change things, you know? And so I would say that for me, the learning is that we all have the power of doing small, small or big changes. But if you do small and big changes, in the end, it's going to, to end into massive changes, you know? I love that. And I, I think that the paradigm has shifted across the, the board. When you think about, you know, 2020 and, and the events and the awakening to social justice and specifically racial justice that happened here in the United States and arguably in the rest of the world, the conversation shifted from don't just, you know, not be racist, be anti-racist, be anti-sexist. And I think that really feeds into what you're saying, where, of course, our governments are responsible for protecting us. I would argue maybe that that's their role. But beyond that, no matter whether whether our governments are or aren't protecting us, it's also important for us to build that culture of diversity in place, which I think is a is a wonderful note to end this podcast on. And so as we do that, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Oh, wow. One month from now? I think it's going to be pretty similar to uh, <laughs> to now. So I see my team uh, continuing uh, growing, but I would say I'm going to focus on one year for now because like we are going to almost double uh, the size of product and R&D during the year. Wow. So today we have 11 teams. At the end of the year, we have 20 teams. And so it's a lot of hiring. It's a lot of onboarding, but it's also... Uh, changing the way we work, you know, and you cannot work the way you work at 10 teams and the way you, you can work at 20. So we are mm -hmm. really creating uh, way more autonomy, empowerment and decentralization inside the team. So one year from now, uh, we should have a model that is way more decentralized than it is today and giving way more autonomy to the team. And this is my main goal for this year, to drive the team into this uh, transformation. In 10 years, uh, digital experience will be as great as physical experience. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to do that is creating way more empathy between a customer and people who provide the digital experience. So we can really help people achieve their goal online you know? Yeah. And uh, so this is what I wish for 10 years from now. I love that. And I love the optimism. And I think we're all outside of optimism, just really working to make that come to fruition. So thank you so much for everything you do, Lucy, and sharing your wonderful insights with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, I had a very, very good time. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.